Grab your Bibles. Well, we got to work on this. We got like an, I feel a little tilted to the right right now. Uh, we got to put more chairs on this side and direct. Some of you, you can't see what I can see up here. There's just like a lot of people over here and, and not a lot of people over here. There's people over here. There's just twice as many. So that's why I feel a little this way. It's all good. Grades three and five, you're heading to the back. And while they're heading to the back, we're grabbing our Bibles and we're opening them up to Joshua chapter five. Joshua chapter five. We've been in the book of Joshua. We took a detour last week just to talk about the outrageous love of God. It's ridiculous. It's awesome. It's incredible. And uh, we head back to Joshua now to talk about a new focus. Um, You know, there's things that go on in our life. and, And I don't know what kind of person you are, whether you're the person that looks at that glass that's half full or is it half empty. Are you that negative person or are you that positive person? How do you look at things in life and say, it's not going to work out? Because if you're like me and you have a favorite basketball team you cheer for and you're watching, and even if they have a 12-point lead, that's not good enough. Because there's still six minutes left in the game and they're probably going to blow it. And I'll probably just have to go to the basement and not watch the game. I.e., last night. But anyway, they still won, but I, I sweat it out. I mean, because I, I guess I'm half full at times. Instead of, I'm sorry, half empty time instead of half full. But then there's other things in life I look at and say, it's going to work out. It's going to be okay. I don't know, what kind of person are you? Are you looking at that glass in your life, those situations in your life and say, it's going to work out? Or do you look at those situations in your life and you're like, I don't know how this is going to work out. Do you ever look at a Rubik's Cube before? And you try to work on that? I'm just curious. How many in this room are able to do the Rubik's Cube, whether it takes you one hour or one year? Were you able to do the Rubik's Cube? Anybody in here? Got one. What's the secret? Watching Hallmark Channel? Is it? You just kept doing You never gave up. Lesson of perseverance. I think there's a lot of good IQ in there going on, too, to be able to figure that one out. You know, I, I, don't, I have no idea. I look at the Rubik's Cube. I tried, but in that situation, my glass is half empty. There's no way. Here's how I saw the Rubik's Cube. I get out paint, and I paint all the side one color. I paint all the other side. Look, I got it that way, right? There's some things you just can't figure out. And then sometimes there's questions then. For those of us, when we look at that glass that's half empty, and we have those questions, maybe our kids have questions. People come to us with questions. They ask them really tough ones. I don't know if you've ever had kids come and, or maybe you ask those own questions like, why is there cancer? Why is there violence in schools? I don't, I don't get that, right? And so typically anything that prohibits pleasure or initiates and inflicts pain and suffering, we want answers. We want to know why because in those moments we're doubting life and there's got to be an answer, right? But think about this. In the good things in life, when we, we look there and we say, boy, this is awesome. We've got to raise this week. Or this situation in my life is such answered prayer. Do you know when we get to heaven, we don't ask God those kind of questions, do we? We don't get to heaven like, hey, God, I've got a couple questions for you. Let's see. Hey, I've got a raise. How did that happen? Or, hey, we were blessed with this. How did that happen? We don't ask God those kind of questions, do we? We have a, another list over here that says, why did this happen in my life? Why did this go on on this planet? It doesn't make sense. That's usually the kind of questions we have. We know there's good and banner lies, and we look at the good and banner lies, and we sort of judge how we want to respond to it. 
positively or negatively. But when it comes to talking to God about it, it's all about the negative, typically, right? And so the reason I'm bringing all this up because our focus really determines our direction in life. How do we look at things in a positive or negative manner? Do we allow God to work with us in a situation or not? When you think about Jericho, and you think about this, you know, I'm sure Joshua, as he approached Jericho, he just went through the Jordan, right? It's like, wow, God, that was awesome. Now I come to Jericho. I'm sure one of his lists was, God, why Jericho? Why this big fortress, right? I mean, when we think of Jericho, what do we think of? We think of walls, right? A lot of famous walls in life, whether it was the Great Wall of China or the Berlin Wall, or maybe it was Pink Floyd's album, The Wall. A lot of walls come to our mind, right? Okay. But when we say Jericho, we think of its walls, a city that caused enemies to tremble. They look at this fortified city, and they, all, they, all you see is walls. That's not usual. And then, of course, you know what's on the inside, too. But for Joshua and the Israelites, it was an obstacle. It was a mighty fortress, a stronghold that couldn't be ignored. And for Joshua and the Israelites, again, a military fortress. It was built to defend. An opponent you don't want to move forward in life and leave them behind you full strength. Because you know they can attack you from behind. So this would be the Israelites' first big test. First big opponent-like obstacle in conquering this land. We had the Jordan, right? But that was just nature. That was just a river. God took care of that. But now you've got an enemy that wants to harm you. How do you handle that? So we think about this. For you historians in here, you have to go back in the ancient times. How do you conquer a city? How do you besiege a city? Do you build some kind of siege ramp that works your way up so you can get up above the walls? Do you surround the city and starve them out? What is your tactic? What are your plans? Well, in the midst of our plan of attack, we realize, I don't know if I have an answer. So the city walls of Jericho are tall and thick. And we look in the Bible for answers. But here's the awesome thing about the Bible. Because let me understand something. There's a lot of people who don't believe in the Bible. So if you ever have to defend your faith, there's certain things we do. We say, well, I believe in the Bible because the Bible says it's true. You can't have an argument about itself because you just sort of, sort of circumference of an argument within an argument. That doesn't usually last. So you have to have something from the outside come in and say, this is true. So we go to manuscripts, right? Or we go to evidence, physical proof of things that we talk about in the Bible are actually out there. So as we look up maybe different digs, different studies, what did the archaeologists find? Well, they found these walls. So in defending our faith, we were able to use actual evidence. And in this situation, even though I'm going to point you to the Bible, I want you to let you know there's evidence outside the Bible that helps us stand firm on this story. There was two walls, actually. The first thick wall was believed to be anywhere between 16 and 30 feet tall, and then in between that and the second wall, there was sort of a sloped ground. So if you got over that first wall, well, then now you've got to work yourself up ground again, up to a wall that was taller than that first wall. And that second wall, even though the first one was about six, seven feet wide, so it wasn't just get over that wall. As you get over the wall, you've got to go a little ways before you can get down and get under cover. 
But you get to that second wall, and they said you could race chariots on top of that wall. It was so wide. This was a mighty fortress, intimidating and defeating just by its appearance. And the inhabitants, now we just talked about the walls, right? But the inhabitants, brutal. Sacrificing children. Ferocious. Mean reputation, vile. I don't know if you've ever faced a challenge in your life that seems very strong, very opposing, consumes your thoughts, it saps your strength, keeps you awake at night. You see it, and you know you have to face it. Just as Joshua saw before him these walls and the inhabitants. See, sometimes our Jericho isn't an actual place. Sometimes our Jericho isn't an actual person or opponent. Church, sometimes our Jericho could be our fear. It could be our anger. It could be our prejudice that we have inside. It could be our bitterness. It may be our anxiety about the future. That might be our Jericho. It might be our guilt from the past that we've held on to. Maybe we're negative. Maybe we're overcritical. Maybe we're anxious. Listen, our Jericho may not be a physical structure. It may just be a mindset, a stronghold within. That may be our Jericho. But you know, God wants to speak to us this morning. So I want you to think about your Jericho. What is it that you're facing? What is the opposition? Maybe, like I said, maybe it's not a physical and maybe it's mentally, maybe it's emotionally. But this morning, I want to share with you God's word. And I pray he gives you some answers on how to handle that Jericho. So as we look at Joshua chapter 5, I think I said 6. Let's go to Joshua chapter 5. We'll start reading in verses 13 to 15. Before Joshua even begins an attack, an incredible thing happens. It says, when Joshua was near the town of Jericho. So here he's approaching Jericho. He sees it. It says what? He looked up. So you think about this. He's nearing the town of Jericho. His fortress, his opponent, his, what he has to face, his struggles is ahead of him. And you already have this feeling that he's sort of walking with his head down. Like, oh man, Jericho's up ahead. How are we going to do this? Because as he was near the town of Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a sword in his hand. Joshua went to him and demanded, Are you friend or foe? Neither one, he replied. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. At this, Joshua felt his face to the ground in reverence. I'm at your command, Joshua said. Do you want your, what do you want your servant to do? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place you're standing is holy. And Joshua did as he was told. Right away, what comes to your mind when you think about that? Take off your sandals, for this ground is holy. You all remember Moses and the burning bush? That's the first thing that comes to our mind, right? This was a holy moment. This wasn't just an angel. This wasn't an apparition. Theologians believe that this was... God in the flesh. That this was Jesus. Long before Jesus walked with his disciples, he shared a moment with Joshua. 
And he wasn't there to perform a miracle or teach a lesson or break bread and fish and multiply it. He had a different thing he wanted to do that day. He appeared as a commander of an army. Jesus, Savior, Victor, Commander. You know, we typically see two armies in our life, right? We see our opponent who we have to face in our own army. That's usually what we see. But in this situation, God says, there's a third army. And I have that army. Here's my commander, Jesus Christ. Psalm 103, 20 to 21 says this. Praise the Lord, you angels, you mighty ones who carry out his plans, listening for each of his commands. Yes, praise the Lord, you armies of angels who serve him and do his will. So when we picture angels, what comes to your mind? Precious moments, those precious moments, figurines, right? You think of maybe a rosy-cheeked little cute angel, right? Maybe you think of this little baby in a diaper with an arrow that shoots at people like Cupid, right? What do you picture when you picture angels? Maybe you're saying, Rex, you're off your rocker. I don't picture any of those things. I picture something majestic. Because I want to ask you, what kind of angels close the mouth of lions in, in the Dan, with Daniel? What kind of angels fought in the battle that Zechariah spoke of? In Revelation chapter 5, John catches a glimpse of heaven. And he saw angels. He couldn't count them. This is what he said. I looked again, and I heard the voice of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and living beings and elders. Angels, mighty in number, strong, full of power. Jesus is their commander. How awesome is that? And Jesus appears to Joshua and says this, I am the commander of this army. Joshua was reminded, those walls, yeah, they're thick, they're towering, and the inhabitants are scary. And you've seen nothing as fortified as this before, but Joshua, you have something greater. You have God with you in this moment right now. The commander of the greatest army that's ever existed. Psalm 46, 7 says, the Lord of heaven's army is here among us. The God of Israel is our fortress. You think Jericho is a fortress? Ha! The God of Israel is a fortress. Our high tower, our defense, our stronghold. So church, let me ask you this. Where are your eyes? Hopefully not behind the eyelids right now, okay? But where are your eyes? Where's your focus? But verse 13, he says, he looked up. Joshua had to look up to see Jesus because his eyes were down. His eyes are on his problems, and he's missing the Lord. And a lot of times, we struggle in life with our problems because our eyes are on the wrong thing. Our eyes are not on the Lord. Our eyes are on a situation we face. And we become overwhelmed and taken captive. Psalm 121, 1-2 says, I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. You know, I wonder, and I think I've said this before, do we have our problems all sized up and memorized? I mean, if you were to sit down with me right now and have a cup of coffee or a glass of water, lemonade, whatever you want, and we're sitting there talking, and you were to tell me about the things that you're going to be facing this week, you probably have it memorized. 
you know, I'm going to be facing this and this and this situation. This is the amount of money we owe, and, and this is what I'm facing at work right now. You've, you've probably have sized up your situation and memorized it, right? Because we do a great job of doing that. We can tell you about the thickness of the walls of Jericho. We can tell you about the size. We can measure up what lies ahead of us, right? But instead of memorizing and measuring what lies ahead of us, we need to look up and see our Savior. That's a holy moment of worship. And when trouble came his way, what do we need to do? Go back to the verse. When he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a sword, he said, Are you friend or foe? Neither one. And the commander of the Lord's army. At this, Joshua fell with his face to the ground in reverence. How many songs did we sing this morning that talk about bowing before Jesus? Bowing takes bending of the knee. Bending of the knee is a submission saying, I'm not in charge. We sang multiple songs like that. Why do we sing that? Because that's the only way to go before our Lord. In a moment of reverence, what do you want your servant to do? And ask that question. If we read on, we think about this. God wasn't picking sides either, by the way. Did you see what happened? Hey, whose side are you on? Do you ever wonder when two teams come before a game, they get ready to play each other, and one team prays in their locker room and the other team plays on the side, prays on the sideline? Or both teams are praying, fans are praying, chaplains from both teams are praying. Who do you think God's going to help win? I'll never forget. It was actually a game at Delta. And I was walking across the field before the game because I was with uh, Delta's coaches, and they were playing Mount Pillar. And Mount Pillar comes across, and I knew their, their coach. And we said, hey, how are you doing? Good to see you. And they said, hey, you ought to get one of these, pointing to me. Like, one of these. <laughs> oh, a chaplain. Yeah, chaplains are awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we try to bring uh, victory to your team. <sighs> Whatever. We were sort of joking about it, having fun time with it. But it's funny how a lot of people believe that. If we get God on our side, we will be victorious. I'll share this story with you. I know you've heard it before, but back when I first went to Defiance College to meet up with their coach, somebody said, you got to go talk to him. He wants, a, he wants a chaplain for his team. All right. Before I went there, I'd picked up a book, Raising the Modern Day Night. Chapter 3, it's all about Bo Jackson. Bo Jackson was a pro athlete in two sports. But here's the thing about him. Even though he played two sports professionally, his dad came to zero games. His dad was an absentee father. Never supported his son, never supported anything he did. He was never there for his son. I closed up Chapter 3 of that book, set it down, and drove over to Defiance College and just sitting there praying, God, I don't want to be an absentee father in the life of my boys. I want to make sure I'm there for them. I go and I sit down and talk to the coach. Nice to meet you, Coach. First time we met, having lunch together. We have this discussion about what he wants as a chaplain. Oh, I'd like you to be here for this and for this and this and this. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm just, I, this was 12 years ago. I was just starting with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. I was coaching high school volleyball at Wasion, and I'm going to drive how many miles over to Defiance? How many days a week? This is crazy. I, I can't do this. There's no way. I said, Coach, I don't think I can do this, but I think I may come over on occasion. I'll find another pastor to help me out, and we'll We'll tag team. We'll get maybe three guys. But, Coach, tell me about your family. And he started telling me about his family. Well, I live in Waterville. I think, well, that's a long drive to Defiance. Because, yeah, sometimes I don't go home at night. I just sleep on my couch in my office. Man, you're not there at home? You got family, Coach? Yeah, I'm married and I got three kids. That's got to be rough on your family. If you're not being there, what's your kid's name? Well, my first son's name is Bo. 
I got a daughter named Lexi, and I got another son named Jackson. I was like, Coach, did you say Bo and Jackson? I didn't even hear Lexi's name, okay? He goes, yeah, Bo Jackson was my favorite, fo- my favorite player. I'm going, Coach, God wants me here. I don't know how it's going to work out, but I know he wants me here. What are the odds that I read about a story about Bo Jackson, absentee father, and I'm sitting across from a coach a half hour later who's got a kid named Bo Jackson because his favorite athlete is Bo Jackson, and he's an absentee father. That's the way God works, right? So as I'm a chaplain for that team, my question is, does God want this team to win because i got a chaplain now? Because that's what that coach wanted. He thought if I'm his chaplain, we're going to win games. And right now they were not winning games. And we do that. Josh was like, hey, what side are you on? You're on our side or the other side? Because we could use it right now. That way we can be victorious. Listen, I don't, when we pray to God for victory, I think that that's, that's good. But I don't think God's saying, I want you to pray so I can side with you. The reason you're praying is so you side with me. Church, that's what I believe. So when a team bows and a team bows, it's not about God's side with us. It's like we better be siding with God in how we live, how we perform, how we act, how we do what we do. It better be for God's glory, not for our own. That's why we do that. And in this moment, it was one of those moments where he had to take a knee before the army, the commander of the army, and say, it's not about you being on our side. God, I need to be on your side. So God speaks and he says the first thing to him, look at chapter 6. Now the gates of Jericho were tightly shut because the people, they're afraid of the Israelites. No one's allowed to go in or out, but verse 2. But the Lord said to Joshua, I have given you Jericho. Look at the person next to you and say, it's yours. Go ahead and tell them. Isn't that awesome? It's like, it's yours. God says, I've given you this. It's yours. I'm not telling you to go take the city. I'm telling you to go receive the city. That's all you need to hear. God already did it. This wasn't the marching orders on how to defeat Jericho. Jericho was already defeated. The giant had already been knocked down. The job had already been accomplished. What God's about to do is give instructions on how to go in and receive what's already been given to you. And there was a time I'll never forget. And again, I repeat myself a lot in stories, so I apologize. Oh, I remember that story. Okay. You get old, you forget. Okay. But there was a time I remember when Jenny was calling me up and said, Hey, while you're out and about, could you stop at JCPenney and, and pick up a package for me? And I was like, What? Stop at a store? Ladies, here's the deal about men and stopping at stores it doesn't rank in our top 10. Just saying, okay? Well, at least for most of us men, okay? At least for me, I know that. I'm thinking there's a, you're a woman, I'm a man. I'm not sure what I'm just going to pick up for you because I'm not a good shopper for women. I'm just not. I'll get the wrong size, wrong color, wrong style. It just, this ain't going to happen. It's, it's intimidating, okay? So understand this. Besides thinking about, too, how we're going to pay for it, all that kind of stuff, you need to understand that entering a mall for a man, myself, okay, is like facing the walls of Jericho. Okay, so when I pull up to a mall, I'm thinking, intimidating. Okay, it's either that or it's like a coma. You know, I just, it's, I'm, I have no energy. It's either defeated or I have no energy, one of the two, okay? So I'm, I'm, but Jenny says this to me, she goes, hey, hey, you know, she, she's probably sensing this on the phone. All you have to do is walk up to the service center, give them your name, and pick it up. It's waiting to be received. It's already been paid for. That's it? That's all. I can do that, all right? So it's sort of like God comes in and he says, 
Joshua, here's all you have to do. Walk up to the service center of Jericho. Let them know whose name it is you're picking this up for. And just receive it. You don't have to pay for it. I've already paid for it. I've already taken care of this. That's it? Yes. Now, a few weeks ago, I preached on the inheritance that God's given us. We talked about God with us, God gives to us, God fights for us, and God inspires us. Now, what I want you to know is in those four sermons, in chapters 1 and 2 of Joshua, we boomerang back around to, to Joshua chapter 6, and you hear all four of those right in this chapter. It's, it's a really amazing thing. Because God, again, reminds Joshua, this is part of your inheritance. already gave it to you. It's yours. So what God owns, he shares with us. And the attributes of Jesus Christ, he shares with you. If you've confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, guess what? God is in your life. Jesus Christ is in your life. You have the same attributes that Jesus Christ has. Was Christ victorious on the cross? Yes or no? Yes. So can we be victorious in life? Yes. It's a matter of, not of, will we get it? It's a matter of when. When will we wake up and receive it? So God explains to Joshua how you're going to pick up your package. So let's read in Joshua chapter 6 as he explains how this is going to go down. Verse 3. You and your fighting men should march around the town once a day for six weeks. Here's the first instruction. Walk around Jericho one time every day for six days. Verse 4. Seven priests will walk ahead of the ark, each carrying a ram's horn. On the seventh day... March around the town seven times with the priest blowing a horn. Okay, here's the next thing you do. Priests walk in front with the ark. That's God's presence and with a ram's horn. That's the second thing. Let's make sure that happens. Here's the third thing. When you hear the priest give one long blast on the ram's horn, have all the people shout as loud as they can. Then the walls of the town will collapse and the people can charge straight into town. So here's what's going to happen. One day, or one time, every day for six weeks, walk around the city. Then, make sure the ark, God's presence, is in front with the ram's horns as well. On the seventh day, you're going to march around seven times while the priests are blowing the horns. Here's the next thing. When you hear the priests give that really long blast on the seventh time around, everybody shout. Get crazy. And there's what's going to happen. The walls are going to collapse. The town is yours. Just walk in. That's it. Second, let's just read this again. I gotta make sure there's gotta be catapults in here somewhere, right? There's gotta be catapults, those big ramrod type things, you know what I'm talking about? They just swing boom. You know, there's gotta be like burning oil or something too. I mean, I've watched a lot of good old movies when they're trying to break down into a, a fortress or a castle, right? I don't see that anywhere in here. Did anybody, did anybody else see that in here? Making sure. So you're telling me we're going to walk silently around a wall six days, and on the seventh day we'll just blow trumpets and shout. Yep, that's it. Okay, how many of you, and don't raise your hand, but if this, you've heard this, many of you heard this story over and over. You've heard this since you were a little kid. You, you had the flannel graph. You even saw the flannel graph, you know, take the walls and sort of turn them, right? And they're down, okay? But if this was the first time you ever heard the story, wouldn't you be saying, that's weird. That's crazy. And this is why people don't believe in the Bible, right here, right? I mean, seriously, what's your reaction to the instructions? If I were to have um, grades four through eight, 
of our church right here, okay? Say, today, this is what I want you to do. After church, I want you to go walk around the perimeter of Wauseon Middle Schools, okay? And then Monday, make sure you do that again before school starts. And Tuesday again, and Wednesday again, and Thursday again. Friday again, and Saturday, please come back and do it again. Oh, and next Sunday, when you walk around, we're going to give you some instruments from the band room. And then the seventh time you walk around as you're blowing those trumpets, I want you all to shout, come on down, okay? And let's see what happens, okay? And as we're in here singing songs, all of a sudden, we'll all start shaking, like, what's going on? It's the kids. It's always the kids, right? Some people pull the fire alarm. Oh, they're marching again. Seven times. Boom. It's coming down. You're saying, that is weird. We need a new pastor, okay? That's the story. Can you imagine being there and what's going on? See, but when God gives us instructions, here's what we need to learn to do. Listen and obey. Listen and obey. Listen, this is spiritual warfare. This is actually spiritual warfare. We tend to see every conflict as physical. We face something and we think, well, how are we going to do this? We need to understand that every conflict we face is typically a battle between us and Satan as well. There is a third army. It's a spiritual warfare that's going on. And we set up these strongholds and it prevents us from victory. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, Paul says this. We are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and destroy false arguments. Church, I'm going to guess right now, a lot of us in this room have various strongholds, and you didn't realize it. There might be somebody in this room right now that says, you know what, God could never forgive me for this. That's a stronghold of guilt. You know what? I can never forgive that person. That's a stronghold of resentment. You know, bad things happen to me all the time. Stronghold of self-pity. You know what? I have to be in charge to make sure this happens. Stronghold of pride. You know what? I don't deserve to be loved. That's a stronghold of rejection. I'll never recover from this. That's a stronghold of defeat. Here's one I struggled with. A lot growing up. I must be good or God's going to reject me. That's a stronghold of performance. I'm only as good as I look. Stronghold of appearance. You know, my value equals my possession. If I've got a lot, I'm very valuable. If I don't have much, I'm not very valuable. That's a stronghold of materialism. Let me ask you this. Out of all those strongholds, do any of them sound familiar in your life? How do, they, how do you defeat these crushing strongholds when you've got them in your life? It's through God's weapons. Paul said we use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds. That's why Joshua sets out to do. Look at verse 6. So Joshua called together the priest. And he said, hey, let's take up the Lord's covenant. And assign seven priests to walk in front, each carrying a ram's horn. So that's the first thing they do is this. God goes first. God goes first. Now let's read on verse 7. Then he gave orders to the people, march around the town. The armed men will lead the way in front of the Ark of the Covenant, Ark of the Lord. Verse 8. After Joshua spoke to the people, the seven priests with the ram's horns started marching in the presence of the Lord, blowing their horns as they marched. Now think about this. They grab a ram's horn. And you're saying, yeah, so? Well, there's two kinds of horns they could have grabbed, a ram's horn or a silver trumpet. If they're blowing the silver trumpets because they're gathering people together to assemble. 
Hey, we've got an announcement to make. We don't have a loudspeaker, so we're going to blow the trumpet to get people together to listen. That's not the, what they grabbed. They grabbed the ram's horn. Here's when you grab the ram's horn after victory. If you win a battle, you win something, you get the ram's horn out and you blow that. They're just starting to march. And they grabbed the ram's horn. Do you see what's going on? They're claiming victory before the battle ever takes place. They're walking with confidence into the battle before one step is even taken. Look at verse 10. Don't shout, don't even talk, Joshua commanded. Not a single word from any of you until I tell you to shout. Then shout. Verse 11. So the ark of the Lord was carried around the town once that day, and then everyone returned and spent the night in camp. Awesome first day. We walked around the town. Joshua got up the next morning. The priests again carried the ark of the Lord. Seven priests with the ram's horns marched in front of the ark of the Lord, blowing their horns. Again, the armed men marched both in front of the priests with the horns and behind the ark of the Lord. All this time, the priests were blowing their horns. Verse 14, on the second day, they again marched around the town and returned to camp. They followed this pattern for six days. Now, let's take some key steps out of here, okay? So you say, well, okay, what do you want us to hear, Rex? What do you want us to apply? I'm hoping you're just hearing from God right now, okay? But if I can challenge you with something, here's three things I want to challenge you with. Here's the first thing. Silence. Silence. A few Sundays ago, I preached about God breathing into us, being inspired, right? Reading God's Word, having that quiet time. Can you imagine a week of silent attacks? Two million people encircling a city and walk around the perimeter of a city. No one talked the whole time. I mean, have you gone walking lately without a distraction? For those of you that like to go outside and walk, have you done it without an iPod, with music, without music, without another person talking? Just walk. Just walk. Don't talk. Don't listen to anything. What do you think about? These people walked in silence. And you have to wonder, as they're walking around this city, what's going on in their mind? Like, why are we doing this? Maybe, I wonder what the people inside those walls are thinking right now. How is God going to destroy the city by us walking in silence? I wonder who's going to be the first person to talk. Probably Timmy. He always talks. Can't keep quiet, right? A couple million people moving without speaking. To me, that is incredible. That would have been a sight to see. And how did they do it? Teachers, did you ever move your kids from one room to another room without kids talking? How's that work, Jill? <laughs> every youth trip I've been on, every youth trip, there was a time when there was called lights out. Okay? And in that moment of trying to get a bunch of junior high boys to be quiet, maybe senior high boys, it was tough. I can't speak for the ladies, but for the guys, I'm sure you just didn't sit up and just look at each other like, I'm a staring contest with Landon right now. Awkward, right? Okay. There's got to be something to talk about, right? I remember laying in my bunk, many bunks, many camps, many overnighters with the youth group. And we say, okay, guys, no more talking. Oh, it takes about five seconds before somebody makes a noise. And then there's laughter, and then there's giggling. All right, guys, all right, all right, all right, all right. no more talking. I don't hear another peep out of you. Peep. Yeah, yeah right on time. That's what I'm saying. If we say no more peeps, there's always one wise guy in the crowd that goes, peep. <laughs> really? And it keeps going on and going on and going on. Okay? 
Now, inside Jericho, you think about this, it's like being in a shark cage and being dropped into the ocean and these great whites are swimming around and you're just sitting there just watching them circle around you. So if I'm inside the walls of Jericho, I'm watching these people, two million people walk around. And that day one, I'm probably nervous. I'm wondering, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Nothing happens. So day two, I go out to the wall again. They're there. It's like, what's, what's going to happen? Hey, they didn't do anything again. Day three, where they come? Oh, here comes the trash talk now. Because now I'm probably going to start saying something to them, making fun of them as they're walking around, right? Why not? They're not doing anything. There's no battering rams. There's no weapons. There's no evidence of intimidation. It's hard to be silent, too. Think about this. Now, you're out there walking day four, and they're trash-talking you. They're making comments. You know how hard it is to remain silent when your critics are speaking loud? Somebody says something about you, and you just want to, oh, you don't know the full story, and you want to fight back with words. It's so hard, right? But that's part of God's first step in overcoming obstacles, silence, silence before God. Let me ask you this. How are we doing with that lesson? How do we do with silence? I struggle with it. I don't like silence. I sometimes lack what to say, so I open my mouth hoping something profound comes out, and then I walk away saying, why did I open my mouth? Why did I say that? I should have never said anything. Why didn't I listen to what I memorized that was on the placard outside our bathroom wall at home in the hallway? It's better to remain silent than be thought a fool and speak and remove all doubt. Abraham Lincoln. I can't remember, or I can't forget that quote, right? That actually comes from a proverb, which says, Even fools are thought wise when they keep silent. With their mouths shut, they seem intelligent. Man, why do I have to open my mouth? But instead of silence, we, we text, we tweet, we email, we Facebook, we Facebook, we FaceTime, we Face everything, it seems like. We do all this stuff, we Skype, we do... We gotta talk. We gotta put it out there, right? Always occupied and communicating with others. And God says, "Whoa, whoa, just be quiet, be silent. Just communicate with me right now. That's all I want." Here's the thing: you can't hear God if we're not quiet in our life. Silence is tough. Faith is easier when we're quiet long enough, though, to hear God's voice, to hear, hear Him give instruction, hope, and encouragement. So that's silence. Here's the second thing: obedience. What did verse 14 say? On the second day, they again marched around the town once, returned to the camp. They followed the pattern for six days. They followed that pattern for six days. God told us to do it. We're going to do it. Hebrews 11.30 says this, By faith, by believing, by trusting, the walls fell, keyword, after the people marched. It all happened after they marched. They heard. They trusted. They were quiet and they listened. Now we're going to obey. That's when the walls fell. Obedience is a demonstration of our faith. Again, obedience is a demonstration of what we believe, our faith. So when we hear God, that's, that's great. The question is now, are we obedient to God? That's where faith really kicks in. Trust and obey. Remember those songs? Anybody grow up in the church singing that hymnal? Trust and obey, for there's no other way but to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. I believe God's saying, don't give me lip service. Don't say one thing and do another. Don't say one thing and do nothing at all. Don't make eloquent speeches about serving and not serve. 
Testimonies are good, but I want to see faith in action. I want to see the real stuff, and I believe that's what God wants. And there's a story in the Old Testament. We won't go there. You can check it out. We'll throw it up there. 1 Samuel 15, verse 17. Just read on. It's a great story about Samuel and Saul. Samuel told Saul as he approached King Saul and said, Hey, do you remember what God told you to do? God gave you a mission. What did he tell you to do? Go in and destroy all the Amalekites. The land was evil. God said, we've got to clean that out. And Samuel says to Saul, why didn't you obey me? Saul's like, what do you mean why didn't I obey you? Now, again, the mission was destroy the entire nation. Entire. Everybody. So Saul said this. Oh, I carried out the mission you gave me. I brought back King Agag. Destroy the entire. That's pretty clear, right? That means everything's gone. All life. And Saul's like, I did that. And I brought back King Agag. How can you destroy everything and bring back a king? You didn't obey. But Saul's like, I'm obedient, right? Because my troops brought back the best of the sheep, goats, and cattle and plundered a sacrifice to God. You were supposed to destroy everything. But what was Saul thinking? Well, you know what? I think what God really wants is sacrifice. So if I bring all this back and just sacrifice it to God, he'll be pleased with that. And this is what Samuel said. What's more pleasing to the Lord? Your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Submission, better than the burning of fat and rams. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft, stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. So because you rejected the command of the Lord, he rejected you as king. Ouch. I think he made that pretty clear. I want obedience. Don't need a sacrifice right now. I don't want lip service. Don't tell me about how awesome you are living the faith or you think we should do this and you've got great teaching. Go live it out. I want to see obedience. God even showed us how to be obedient. He provided a great example. God says, you love us, right? Do we ever ask that to God? God, do you really love us? Philippians 2, verses 7 says, Instead, he gave up the divine privileges. He took on the humble position of a slave, born a human being. And when God appeared in human form, that of Jesus Christ, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Let me show you what obedience is, God says. You might be struggling with that right now. My own son, in obedience, died a criminal's death on the cross for you. God didn't just say, hey, I love you. Let me show you that I love you. He obediently did that. So this walk in silence, you think about this. As they walked in silence for seven days, they walked in obedience. A weird tactic, I know. But that was God's way. That's sort of weird, right? But then again... Telling people, I love Jesus, I read my Bible, I tell the truth, I'm supposed to be pure, I'm committed to one person. A lot of people say, that is so weird compared to the world, right? But it's God's way. It might have been weird to walk around a wall and people look at us today and say, you're weird for saving yourself till marriage. Purity? What's that in this world? Be with whoever you want to be with. That's what the world says. And Christians say, no, purity. They're like, that's weird. Well, it's obedience. It's obedience. Silence 
obedience. Here's the final, the third, third and final thing, perseverance. Perseverance is what? Never giving up, keep going, obedience to the end, right? Look at verse 15. On the seventh day, the Israelites got up at dawn and marched around the town as they had done before. This time, they went around the town seven times. The seventh time around, the priest sounded the long blast of the horns. Joshua commanded the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the town. Jericho and everything in it must be completely destroyed as an offering to the Lord. I mean, how many examples do we have of people or businesses or relationships or teams quitting when things get tough? We see it all the time. Every week I hear a story about how somebody quit, they give up. It's not worth it. I don't want to do it. It happens all the time. See, when you're losing or you're feeling defeated, instead of pressing on or continuing to try, you just give up. And for the Christian, when the odds seem overwhelming and it appears that our efforts are worthless, why not just give up, right? Because that's not how God rolls. Because God doesn't roll that way, we don't roll that way. You know what I'm saying? Because God never gives up, we never give up. Because God is faithful, we remain faithful. The people were given instructions one day at a time. Think about this. They didn't have the battle plans in front of them. They woke up that morning and said, what's the battle plan for today? Walk in silence around the city. Listen, they were living out verse 11. They didn't have verse 20. What's verse 20 say? When the people heard the sound of the ram's horns, they shouted as loud as they could. Suddenly the walls of Jericho collapsed. And the Israelites charged straight into town and captured. They didn't have verse 20 when they were living in verse 11. All they had was that moment. Get up and walk. Gotcha. Day six. Can you imagine day six? Here we go again. But they kept going. They didn't know that tomorrow. They didn't know on the seventh day. They didn't know on the seventh circle round that those walls were going to fall down because they were obedient. They did not give up. Church, I want to encourage you something. At the end of each day, and they returned to camp in silence, and the walls were standing, and nothing changed. They probably had that idea of wanting to give up. And I'm sure there are times in our lives, too, when we're sitting around, and we're thinking, I'm trying to be faithful to God, but nothing's changed. Can I, can I share something with you? You're not alone. I'm sure those people felt the same way. But they kept walking. They kept trusting. They kept obeying. It's not just about obedience. It's obedience to the very end. Just because God doesn't act immediately or in time, we've conjured up in our mind, well, I guess I can just justify and go back to what I was doing before because God's not showing up. Did he tell you when he was going to show up? I think he asked us to be obedient, so let's keep doing this. Let's wrap this up. Worship team, would you come forward, please? As the worship team's coming forward, listen carefully what I have to say, church. If you're a Christian here, you understand this. We have an opponent. His name is Satan. And you've been engaged in opposition your whole life, and it's a struggle. And we all have obstacles in our life, just like the people did with Jericho. That was their stronghold. But here's what they learned, and that is this. They needed to get silent with God. Here, Church, this is how we're going to face our strongholds this week. Let's get silent with God. As we get silent with God, let's find out what He wants us to do, and then to be obedient to that. And when we discover what it is we're supposed to be obedient to, don't give up on being obedient to that. Keep walking. And here's the thing. If you're not a Christian in here this morning, learn the lesson that the people inside the walls of Jericho learned. There is a God, and He is mighty. And God followers may appear weird at times in the things that they do. We're just trying to be obedient to God.
Know this, though, that God surrounds the unbelievers with his presence. If you don't know who Jesus Christ is or who God is, understand this. God knows you, and he surrounds you with people who love him. And you have to respond. You have to decide to believe or not. You don't have a choice. See, in the end, those who were in Jericho were destroyed because they failed to believe. They feared God, but they didn't respond to God. They feared God, but they did not respond to God. You know, this society was bad for so long that God's judgment came. He said, you know what? I've given you multiple opportunities to turn to me, but yet you will not turn to me. You've turned away from me and you can make others turn away. So judgment is coming because of your sin. Listen, their destruction wasn't God's fault. Their destruction was their own choice. And for those who don't believe in this world today, God sends out a warning. Trust me. I'm giving you a choice. And if you, re- if you receive me, I'll give you salvation. If you reject me, there is judgment. And it isn't pretty. Don't be like those inside Jericho. Surrender to him today. Seek forgiveness. Walk with the rest of us who are walking every day, not giving up. Would you please stand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are an awesome God. I thank you, Lord, for your word as a reminder that we have these strongholds in our lives and we have these things in our lives that we fear or we wonder, how will we get through them? How will we get over them? Maybe it's guilt. Maybe it's anxious moments or anxious thoughts. Maybe it's materialism. Maybe it's arrogance and pride, anger, bitterness. We got things in our lives, these strongholds, and we want them to come down. We're not sure how it's going to happen. So God, help us to be silent before you. Help us to hear your voice. And when you tell us what to do, help us to be obedient to do it and not give up. Obedience to the end. We're going to trust you, God. We may seem weird at times to people because we're walking a certain way. I'm not worried about those people and what they think of me because I just need to be obedient to you. But God, I am concerned about those people that don't know you. I pray we all are. I pray, Lord, for those who have never placed their faith in you, that they will. And you love them. And you want to forgive them. They just kind of seek you and ask for forgiveness. God, help us to be quiet. Help us to be obedient. Help us to be obedient to the end. So we live for you, Lord. Lord, we sing to you now. In the name we pray. Amen.